Amen. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14 today. Last time we were uh, looking in as Jesus was in the temple and he was having a run-in again with the religious authorities. And they were questioning his authority, saying, Jesus, whose authority are you doing these things? You remember a couple of weeks ago, he went in there and flipped over some tables of some money changers and he, he just caused a scene in the temple. And then they started questioning him and saying, Jesus, what authority are you doing this on? And then last week, essentially, he said, I'm here on the authority of God. And uh, he explained that to them. And then he gave them two parables. And those two parables were directed at the religious rulers of the Jews. And the first one was the parable of two sons. There was one son, uh, you remember the father called both the sons and said, go work in my vineyard. And one said, uh, no, I'm not going to go. And uh, eventually he went. The other one said he was going to go, but he didn't go. And then the point was, is Jesus was saying that the Jews were kind of like the son that said that they were going to go, that he was going to go into the vineyard, but they didn't. You know, we're, we're going to live for God, but we didn't. The other Son represented people that, you know, essentially reject God, but eventually come around and submit to God. And the point of that parable was what's important is what you do far more than what you say. Like you could say, I want to live for Christ, but if you don't live for Christ, the words, you know, it's a good start to have the words. So long as eventually, you know, the, the actions need to come. Your heart needs to live for Christ. And that was the first parable, the parable of the two sons. The second one was the parable of the wicked tenants. And you remember it showed um, that because Israel did not produce the fruit that God expected in the vineyard, that, you know, God was essentially going to take the privilege away from them and bring other people into the vineyard. And the point was, you know, the Jews were going to lose their privileged position and then the church is going to come in with Gentiles, Jews, black, white, every single person is going to come in and, and Israel is going to lose their privileged position. Now, in this passage today, there's another parable. And this parable symbolizes God's invitation to salvation. And then there are four responses to God's invitation. And they're going to be very instructive. And so what we do as we go through this parable is we're going to scan ourselves. We're going to scan our response to the invitation to be a Christian. I assume I look around the room and, you know, I assume everybody in here has responded to the invitation. But in this parable, we're going to see four different responses. And if you are a Christian here today and you're following the Lord, seeing these different responses can probably help you as you witness to others because you'll be able to identify these different responses to uh, God's invitation to salvation. The theme of the message, if you wanted to boil it down into one sentence, is the invitation to salvation is open to all, but only those who respond with belief in the gospel will be saved. The invitation goes out to everybody. But the only people that are going to be saved are the ones that respond with belief in the gospel. And we're going to see that in the passage. So four responses to God's invitation of salvation. And that's our outline. I'll show you. It's just four points. If you have a bulletin, it's in there. God's invitation to salvation is refused in the passage by, first of all, unwillingness. 
God's invitation to salvation is refused by indifference and hostility next. You know what indifference is, right? It's like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but, you know, know, I'm indifferent. The next one, God's invitation to salvation is extended to all, good or bad. And then the last thing, God's invitation to salvation is refused by failing to dress appropriately. Now, what could that possibly mean? Some of you are like, yeah, dress code in church. That's what, no, that's not what it's about. Well, sort of. It's like a spiritual dress code. And that's why I've entitled the message, How Are You Clothed? And you're going to see how this all fits together in the end. Let's go ahead and we'll read the whole text, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says this, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf or cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good, bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Father in heaven, as we approach your word today, I pray, Father, that you would help me deliver a message, Lord, that beyond the words of a man, your spirit would speak supernaturally through the teaching to the people here today that you would instruct us all. Heavenly Father, make this book live to us. Show us who we are. Show us our Savior. And we do ask in Jesus' name, amen. First of all, God's invitation to salvation refused by unwillingness. Notice there, verse 1, and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. So Tuesday of Holy Week, and like I said, this is the third parable in a series of Jesus giving this to the religious Authorities. Now, that word parable, if you're not familiar with it, Jesus taught in parables, you know, pretty frequently. And what a parable is, is essentially it's an earthly story that communicates a heavenly truth. It's sort of like a metaphor. And why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, a couple of reasons. One, people that are interested listened. They wanted to know more because they heard, what's he saying? He's not just telling this earthly story. There's something else going on there. 
The second reason Jesus taught in parables was because, you know, the people that had a hardened heart that didn't want anything to do with Jesus, they just wrote it off as just some, you know, some earthly story. They thought, oh, who's this guy talking about a wedding feast and whatever? And they just wrote it off. So it's kind of interesting. It brings out an application for us, you know. When you want to know the things of God, God reveals them to you, you know. When you approach the Word of God with a heart that wants to know God, God opens it up to you. Now, this marriage that this king arranged, now, marriages in this day, just like today, were extremely important social events. In fact, probably more so then. I mean, a marriage today, you can go get one at the courthouse, and not that that's bad, it's, it's okay, but in this culture, I mean, these were blowouts. They were huge festivals, and like everybody would get invited, and it would just be a huge party. Now, especially the wedding of a prince, right? The king is arranging this marriage for his son. Let me give you the keys to this parable. So where it says the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his sons. Now, of course, God's the king, right? Jesus, the son. Marriage, God's people being joined to him, right? And the servants, those are the ones going out, calling God's people to come to be joined to him through Jesus. So that's the keys of the parable. Now it says that they were not willing to come. Notice that. So the, the invitation went out, go get them. They don't want to go. Now this would have just seemed absurd to the hearers. So that's the point of this parable is just the lunacy of people rejecting the call to come to God for salvation. That's the whole point of it. Because in this day and age, this, this culture, if you were invited to the wedding, there's no reason that you wouldn't go, right? It was a huge privilege and it was a, you know, it's lunacy that they would be unwilling to come. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. There is some evidence to show that when a wedding would happen, that first of all, it would be announced, one invitation. Then there would be the second invitation when everything was set up and ready and the people were just to come. And it's kind of interesting because the father would have everything set up, you know, kill the calves, have the food prepared and all this other stuff. And then when it was done, just go tell the people and they had to kind of wait in expectancy. It could be at any time, right? And then the servants would come to the door and say, the, the banquet's ready to go and let's go. And uh, kind of an interesting way to do things, right? Now he would just text them, right? But, you know, he send the servant out to the door. And, uh, and, but here's the whole thing. So it's kind of implied that these people, when they heard the first invitation, were like, yeah, okay, we, we want to be uh, there. But then now here comes the second invitation. By this time, they're just unwilling. And so notice that right there, the invitation is just refused by simple unwillingness. Now, number two, verse four says, again, he sent out other servants and said, uh, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Because everything's prepared. It's all ready to go. Now, this is exactly like the offer of salvation, right? When God calls somebody to be saved, he says, it's all done for you. Jesus did it all. 
Jesus paid it all. He did everything. The whole banquet, it's all set up. All you got to do is just come here and just be blessed. All you got to do is just be willing and you just have to come and be blessed. That's a beautiful thing. You know, when I was studying this passage, I got stuck on those and all things are ready. There's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to complete. God just says, come, come to the wedding, come to the feast. But verse 5 says, but they made light of it and went their ways. Now, these are people that are saying, I'm just too busy. I'm too busy with work. I'm too busy with hobbies. I'm too busy with other concerns. Thanks for the invitation, but I have stuff going on that, you know, is more interesting. It's more important. So that's the response of indifference. You see, what the glorious feast of the gospel offered to some, things of the world are more important. And you see that right there. It says they went to their own farm, went to their businesses. And there are people that are just like that today. Tragically, God's offer of salvation comes to their life. And they say, I got other things going. Now, and the rest goes on there. Seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Now that corresponds to the parable from last week. You remember the wicked vine dressers? They sent the messengers and he, they stoned them, killed them. Eventually he sent his son, killed them. That's corresponding there. He's talking about the Jews, how the Jews rejected all the prophets, stoned all the prophets, eventually killed Jesus that's what he's getting at. This is the response of hostility. Now, when you share the gospel with people, haven't you noticed that some people are either indifferent to it, but there are some people that are just hostile to it, you know? You probably maybe know somebody even right now where they have already made it very clear to you, don't you talk to me about Jesus, Right? The response of hostility. It's right here in the passage. It's, it, this is kind of a thing that goes on, you know, with the things of God. These four things, these happen. Interesting. This response of hostility, by the way, is increasing in America. People today are not even, even in my own time, even since we've planted this church 10 years ago, the response to the gospel in culture has become increasingly hostile, right? It used to be in this culture, in this world, that Christians were sort of in the center of the room and everybody was kind of looking to Christians to, you know, see where, you know, how do we, you know, like Billy Graham, he's like the nation's pastor. And they're looking to Christians for morality and for good, uh, what is good and what's wrong. And that's not like that anymore. Christians are no longer in the center of the room. They're in the corner of the room as a whole. And people are increasingly hostile towards the things of God. Now look at the king's reaction in verse 7. He's furious. He, he throws this wedding. He arranges all this thing. And he's got a group of people that are just unwilling to come. Then he's got a group of people that are just got better things going on. And then he's even got people that are hostile. And so the king is furious. Jesus is looking the religious authorities in the eye. And he's saying God is furious with their response. 
to his invitation to salvation. And it goes on and says that he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now, some commentators connect this to the destruction of Jerusalem that came in 70 AD. Uh, the Romans came into Jerusalem, destroyed the whole place, destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And some commentators say this is Jesus kind of prophesying about that. Maybe so. So the invitation refused because of straight-up unwillingness, then indifference and hostility. So what does God do, considering the leaders of Israel and many of the people refuse the invitation? What does God do? Look, uh, in verse 8 through 10, the invitation to salvation now is extended to all. He says to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you see, or as many as you find, invite them uh, to the wedding. Notice that in verse 8, where he said, those who were invited were not worthy. According to this passage, what makes a person worthy? Willingness, right? Willingness. You think about that when you are sharing Christ and when you look at the world around and you think about what God's standard is for worthiness, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about this from time to time. We'll say, well, none of us are worthy. And we need to qualify this statement because none of us are deserving, I think is a better way to say that. None of us are deserving of salvation, right? And in fact, we deserve, you know, anything but salvation, right? But worthiness in this passage, God ascribes worthiness to those who are Willing, right? They, he puts the invitation out there, but there are people that are just not willing, people that are indifferent, and people that are hostile. If they were just none of those things, God would have called them worthy in this you know, context here. And so I love what it says in verse 9. Therefore, go into the highways. Now, in this day and age, uh, the road systems like the highways, everybody would be in the highways, Right? So, in other words, go out to the people where all the people are. Go out to them. And verse 9 continues, And as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. That's cool. That corresponds with the parable from last time of the vine dressers. Like, the, the Jews would be set aside and then the others would come in. And verse 10 says something that just moves our hearts. Get them all gathered together and all whom they found, both bad and good. That's neat right there. That's God's grace. Go give the invitation to anybody you can find, bad or good. The people that are in the worst sin, and the people that think that they are, maybe they're just the most righteous person you've ever met. It's the same offer to everybody, right? Everybody needs this offer. Everybody needs what God offers, and God offers it to the good and to the bad. I'm so grateful for that. I've had an opportunity this week to think about just some of the bad things that I've done in my life, you know? 
Sometimes you go through life and you have the opportunity to, to rehash some of those things. Somebody will come into your life or somebody will say something to you or you'll see somebody from the past or whatever. I'm so grateful that this offer is to both bad and good. Now, I want to challenge everybody here and myself included that, guys, this is our calling as the church, right? To go out to where the people are and invite anybody. And the only standard you put out there is, are you willing? See what I mean? Now, this passage, passage is going to develop this a little more as we go on, but really that's the basic call to you and to me, to this church, is to go out and make this offer to everybody with this one qualification. Are you willing? I love reading this because I see the heart's desire of the king is that the wedding feast would be filled with guests. You know, there, unfortunately, are some Christians that don't understand God's heart is that the wedding feast would be filled. They think it's only supposed to contain people like them. <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't understand. Put the invitation out to anybody and everybody and anybody that will respond. They think, you know, God's, you know, they, they think God's got this really exclusive thing going. And there is one way. I'm not saying there's not one way, but it's God's heart that as many as would come through that one way. He wants heaven to be filled with people. Now something interesting happens. A guy shows up, but he isn't clothed appropriately, so he gets tossed out, and actually far worse than just being tossed out. Even the guy, uh, you know, even though he shows up, he gets kicked out, right? So the invitation goes out, anybody that's willing, but this guy comes in such a way that he gets tossed out. You say, well, I thought it was open to anybody. It is, but you have to come clothed, appropriately. So you do have to wear a suit. No. Number four, our last point. God's invitation to salvation is essentially refused by failing to dress appropriately. But when the king came in to see those guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how'd you come in here without the wedding garment? Now, he probably just showed up, he heard the invitation, he probably just came in his street clothes, right? His, you know, day-to-day -day rags. He wasn't dressed appropriately for this sort of event. Now, the idea is he, he showed up, but not in a way that respected the king, not in a way that respected, you know, what's supposed to be going on in a wedding. He showed up pretty much, you know, in his own way. He tried to come into the wedding feast in his own way way. Now, that's a huge problem. It made me think about, as I was uh, studying this passage this week, that how I used to go to gym class, right? You know, I used to go to gym class in, uh, I used to have these combat boots that I got at the military surplus store because I used to be a punk rocker, you know? And uh, 
I'd wear those to gym class, and then the, the soles of them would scuff up the gym floor, and they would tell me every week, you're not coming dressed appropriately. And inside I'm thinking, I know it's because I don't want to participate in gym, you know, and uh, I got an F. And so I was trying to, th- you know, I was thinking, that's kind of what happens to this guy. He, he shows up in a way that he shouldn't be, and he tries to come his own way, and essentially he gets an F. He gets tossed out. He says he did not have on a wedding garment. Now, there's a little bit of evidence. Commentators are kind of divided, uh, scholars on this one. But there's evidence to show that when you would come in this sort of situation to a wedding, that the, you know, the person that organized the wedding would give you a garment when you're going to come in. That's credited to Augustine. They think that he was the first one that started saying this. Um, Commentators are a little divided. There's evidence of this in the Greek culture, but nobody can find any evidence of this in the Hebrew culture. You know, I don't, I don't know. I just put that out there just so, you know. I tend to lean towards thinking this text supports the idea that the garment would have been given. Here's why I think that. Because he said, just go call them off the street. The banquet's already ready, like the food's steaming on the table. And he says, just go get them and bring them in. So there's not really time to go home and get a shower and, you know, pluck your nose hair and, uh, you know, get all dolled up and everything, uh, you know, gals. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, there's not time to do that. And so I think it leans towards that, that, you know, he's expected to come, but he's got to clothe himself in everything that the king provides, Right? But he refuses to clothe himself in that which the king provides. Now, he gets confronted on it, and he was speechless. There's just no response for what uh, that was going to make any difference at this point. It's kind of an interesting detail, and I, I haven't really thought through it so much, but just that interesting detail there that he was speechless. You know, the guy confronts him on it. Why don't you have the proper garment on? He doesn't have anything to say. And so the solution is um, bind him, you know, cast him in, you know, to outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a biblical picture for hell. If you've ever studied hell, if you've read your Bible, these are the descriptions of what hell is like. So a guy doesn't show up clothed appropriately and he gets tossed into hell over the whole thing. Very serious consequence of responding to this invitation to salvation, but not coming correctly. The man was either ignorant, flippant, arrogant, misinformed, whatever the case it was, it was offensive to the king and disrespectful to his gracious offer. He presumed that he could come to God's feast his own way, and he was cast into hell. In order to come to salvation, to come into God's kingdom, you have to come correctly. The invitation is to everybody, but you have to come correctly with the correct clothing. Now hold on to that because we're going to talk about that in a second. We'll conclude with that. But verse 14, interesting verse. If you ever want to read a whole bunch of debates uh, through scholars and commentators, read about verse 14 here. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, one commentator I read uh, says that this really applies to Israel. Many are called. You could also translate that as invited. But few are chosen, referring to the lineage of Abraham. There's many, 
But within the lineage of Abraham, only some of them become Christians, right? That's one take at it. I think, you know, basically what it's getting at is it's kind of a verse that wrestles with this paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? The invitation goes out to all, but only some respond to it. Who are the ones that are chosen? It's the ones that respond to it. So you're saying that God chooses people for salvation? Yes. But you're saying I need to respond to salvation? Yes. How can both of those things be true? I don't know. You could sit and hash that out like the theologians have done for the last 2,000 years. And I'll give you my best take on it. It's that God chooses people to be saved, but they need to make a real choice to accept salvation, right? Both of those things go together in the mind of God. They don't have to go together in my mind. His ways are higher than my ways. He put the invitation on every... You might be worried today. You might be saying, how do I know if I was chosen? Well, here's a, here's a simple question. Have you responded? Go ahead and respond. Then you'll know you're chosen. Simple. So the gospel call, the invitation to salvation, refused by unwillingness, indifference, hostility, and lastly, a refusal to come clothed correctly. What does it mean to be clothed correctly? Well, the Bible refers to salvation in many places as being clothed. I'm going to read a few verses. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. If you're a note taker, these are kind of interesting. It says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. You see the picture there about having your sins forgiven and being clothed with clean robes. Now, if you hop to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, You have a few names even in Sardis, Jesus talking to the church in Sardis, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes, overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You see, walking with Jesus, clothed in white, in the robes of righteousness. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Isn't that interesting? Picture of being invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and being worthy because you're clothed and this white, this righteousness is what the picture is. So to be clothed correctly is to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. By grace, the marriage feast is ready. Everything is prepared. By grace, all you must do is come. But you can't come in your old, sinful, Adamic nature. In other words, you can not come to salvation in the same spiritual condition that you were born in. You must be born again. That's what he's getting at. 
You cannot come in your old sinful nature. There are those today that think that they are righteous because of their works. Not so. You must come clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not in the righteousness of your own works. Now, there are a lot of Christians that know this in their head. They know this theoretically. <coughs> but there are many people that just on a heart level, in a practical I don't even want to say head and heart because, you know, it gives this view that there's this dichotomy, like there's this split between our head and our hearts. The difference between head and heart is knowing something and living something. That's really the difference. Knowing something. If, if somebody says, I know it in my head, but not in my heart, all they're saying is, I just don't obey it. I know it, but I just don't live by it. So there are a lot of Christians that know that salvation does not come by your works, but they don't live like that, right? And let me give you a couple of ways to diagnose that because this is helpful for me because I tend to need reminders on this, right? If you're not robed in the righteousness of Christ, that means you're trying to robe yourself in your own righteousness. You're showing up like this guy to the feast, you know, just in your own clothes. Now, a way you can tell that you're doing that is because you're constantly defending yourself to God in your own mind. You'll get tripped up in some sort of sin. You won't do the right thing. Or you'll do the wrong thing. And then you get into this inner dialogue where you start bringing up all these good things that you do. And you'll start saying, well, look, I might have screwed up here, but you know what? This last season of life, I've done pretty well. Well, look what you're doing. You're offering your works as justification for being righteous. See what I mean? You're not robed in the righteousness of Christ. You're trying to robe yourself in your own righteousness. This is a serious wake-up call to those of us that do this, because when you get to the end of your life, if you're trusting in your own works, this passage says that that's not acceptable. You need to be trusting in Jesus' works, and that's it, right? Another way that you can tell if you're trying to robe yourself in your own righteousness is when somebody talks about being right with God, your mind goes to the rituals that you've performed. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed. I go to church. I make an offering. I read my Bible, I pray, I do good deeds, I do good works. So see, if, if, if the subject comes up of going to heaven and being right with God, and if your mind goes to these things and you say, you know, that, that's, I'm going to rest right there, and I know I'm going to heaven because I was baptized, confirmed, whatever it is, the whole list of stuff. If you rest on those things, you're like this guy responding to God's invitation to salvation, but you're showing up to the feast robed in your own dirty clothes. This is such a relief. Because some of us are exhausted, constantly trying to 
justify ourselves, present ourselves to ourselves and to God in a way that seems acceptable, right? When you look in the mirror, do you look at somebody there and you say, I'm acceptable. I'm acceptable to God, right? That means that you're showing up to the feast robed in your own righteousness. There's no reason you should feel acceptable in your own righteousness. There's no reason. If you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I'm not acceptable, you shouldn't feel like that if you're looking to your own works. But if your eyes are fixed upon the cross of Christ and you see the works of Jesus Christ and you know that through the gospel that God the Father has taken the perfect obedience of Christ and applied it to you, you can now look in that mirror and say, I am 100% acceptable to God my Father and there's nothing anybody could do about that, not even myself. Hold on to that. Because the enemy tries constantly to get you tripped up in this stuff. And you know what the enemy's greatest tool is to get you tripped up in this stuff? The Bible. He takes the law of God and he uses it on you unlawfully. He says, wait a minute, did you lie? Cheat? Steal? You look at somebody with lust? Did you fail to love your neighbor as yourself? Did you fail to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength? When has anybody ever done that, by the way? And the devil comes to you, and he uses the law of God unlawfully, and he tries to put condemnation on you. And you say, you know what? I'm, man, you're right. I'm not acceptable. I've broken like every law in this Bible, every one of them. And you, and you partner with the devil then, and you start believing what he's saying, and you say, I'm unacceptable, I'm unworthy. This passage tells you that because of God's calling on your life, because his love, because of his invitation, you are worthy in that sense. You're not deserving, but you are worthy in that sense, that he has called you, he's invited you. And if you will be able to, if you'll be willing to, to clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ rather than try to hold on to your own, uh, you know, uh, justification, looking at your own works, uh, you'll come in. You'll come into the feast. And the feast is amazing. There are things setting out on that table that are so good to eat. Adoption into God's family, having a heavenly father that loves you and cares for you like a child of his. the absolute bliss of knowing that your sins are forgiven as far as the east is to the west, your transgressions cast from you. The absolute confidence to walk in this world free from, I don't know, social anxiety. Who cares? My father loves me. Free from a life of meaninglessness existence. My life has a purpose and a meaning. God fearfully and wonderfully created me and he's given me good works to walk in. This feast of the gospel, these things laid out on this table are wonderful to behold. All you gotta do is be willing and be willing to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. My sin and shame and guilt 
traded for his purity, his holiness, his perfect obedience to the Father. My sin, great as it is, laid on him on the cross. Why would anybody in their right mind refuse such an invitation? Nobody that knows what's being said in this Bible in their right mind would refuse this. How are you clothed? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. To the God who says everything is ready, just come. Come and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word today, Lord, and we love you. We thank you, Lord, that we're at peace in you. That there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ. God, I'm so grateful that this invitation was to the bad and the good. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you for the real experience that we've had. The forgiveness of sins, the cleansing. Cleansing of our conscience. Oh, Father in heaven, it is my prayer that by your spirit, even now, that if there's somebody sitting in here today that has never experienced your forgiveness, Lord, that you would let them know the invitation is open now to come. If you want to experience the forgiveness of Christ here today, it starts by you acknowledging your sin to him, saying, Jesus, I know, God, I know I've broken your laws. I understand. I agree that your law is good. I agree that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that to you. That is followed by belief in the gospel. What is the gospel? It's that God sent his son into this world to live the life that you could never live, perfect obedience, and to die the death that you deserve to die, that I deserve to die. And on that cross, Jesus was crucified and killed. And when that happened, all the sin of the world was laid upon him. Now God the Father is free to forgive anybody that will come because that sin has been paid for. That penalty has been paid for at that cross. God is now being a holy, just God. He didn't, swipe it. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He dealt with it. And now he's able to make that invitation to anybody because the sin has been put on Christ. The gospel is that Christ came into this world. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again three days for the forgiveness of sins. And anybody that believes in this, the Bible says, will be saved. It says anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anybody who trusts in what Christ did at the cross 2,000 plus years ago, anybody will be saved. Whosoever will come, whosoever will call upon me. If you want to experience the forgiveness of God, you've just been given the way to do that today. Acknowledge your sin to him. Believe the gospel.
Father in heaven, we do thank you so much. We thank you for the ministry that you've given to our hearts, Lord. May we as a church, oh God, may we as a church, as a united family in Christ, may we go out into the highways and make this incredible message available to anybody who'll listen. And I pray that you'd help me with that, Lord. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to be good witnesses in Mason City and wherever we come from. We do ask in Jesus' name, amen.